How y'all doing today? How many of you are really doing good today? Oh, good. Some of you. Uh-huh. That's good. That's good. Ah, oh, I can. I'm glad you're doing good today, buddy. Oh, today's a good day. Um, you know, I'm going to do something that is like, um, like anti, uh, like against anything a homiletics professor would tell you. Um, I'm going to lose half of you before we ever get to the before we ever actually read scripture. So I'm going to lose about half of you here real quick. Um, if I lose you here at the very beginning, tune back in here in just a couple minutes because it, it, it'll get good again. But I'm going to lose some of you here real quick. Um, it, y'all should know by now, I, I like to have fun before we before we dive into this, so I, that's just kind of what I want to do. Um, so, first of all, I, I mentioned this this morning, um, just in conversation, whenever I was in junior high, um, there was, there's, I, mean, I assume the band is still playing, I don't know if they are or not, um, but there was a band called Pillar. Anybody familiar with the, the Christian band Pillar? Oh, good. I'm noticing, you guys are younger than me, but you're close. Closer. Um, anyway, so I was afraid that nobody would know who Pillar is. Anyway, um, they came out with an album back in back in two thousand. Um, and whenever they came out with this album, um, they had this one track on it that that really stuck with me. Now I, I thought about this and I, I listened to the song again this week, and it's really not good. Like the the lyrics are are fine, but the quality of the music. Like I listen to, I'm like, this just really isn't good. Um, I don't know why I, li- I love this so much. Um, but the, the name of the song was The Original Superman, okay? The Original Superman. Now, you all can probably see where that's going, right? Just who is the original Superman? It's Jesus, right? The original Superman. Um, so uh, as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, we could do this. We could play a game here real quick. And I think it's okay to play games in church. Um, so I hope you all are okay with that because that's what we're going to do. So that's where I'm going to lose some of you. Um, some of you might know your superheroes, I bet some of you don't. Now, my kids have been really into superheroes lately. Um, they have, they have, my boys have been all about any superhero stuff. Um, so, uh, like, superheroes might have just been on my brain. But this came up, and I thought we could play a game to see if we could figure out, um, if you could tell me the secret identity of these superheroes. So, uh, go ahead and put that first one up. You all know who this is, right? You know, Superman. Okay, what is Superman's secret identity? Clark Kent. Okay, I figured most of you would get that one. Clark Kent. That's Superman. Now, I always think that it's funny that it's a quote-unquote secret identity when all he does is take his glasses off and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know who you are. Um, I think Superman's funny that way, though. Anyway, okay, so the second one. Who's this? Spider-Man. Spider-Man's secret identity is? Peter Parker. Um, If you've ever watched Into the Spider-Verse, right, there's there's the, the pig, right? You all know what his name is, his secret identity? Peter Porker. Uh huh. Yeah, it's Spider Pig. Yeah, I thought that one was funny. Okay, um, the third one, Batman. What's his secret identity? Bruce Wayne. Okay, now these are too easy. I'm I'm gonna have to challenge you just a little bit. Now, um, some of you will not be challenged by this, but some of you will. Go ahead and put the next one up. All right, who's this? The Flash. Now, now, hang on, hang on. If you know the Flash's secret identity, raise your hand. Okay. All right. So most of you don't. Okay, I didn't figure you would. Okay. You want to give it away? Barry Allen. Allen. Um, This one, I actually told Danielle yesterday that I had something specifically for her family today. Um, Because as we were expecting Micah, um, she, she told us again and again, if it's a boy, you have to name him Barry. So it'll be Barry Allen. I'm like, well, there's a problem with that because then it would have to be one of those ironic names because genetically my kids will never have speed. Um, So uh, I I said that won't work. Anyway, so um, 
I got one more, and this one, this one, I, I think maybe the Gordon family is the only ones that will get this. So go ahead and put the last one up. All right, anybody know who that is? It's the Green Arrow. Green Arrow. Does anybody that's not named Gordon know this one? Nobody. All right, go ahead. What's his name? Oliver Queen. Oliver Queen. Yeah. All right. So, and of course, there were others that I thought about using, but um, I wanted to use this one just because I, if you, yeah, they. That's just for you guys. So there you go. All right. But I wanted to go through these because each one of these heroes has this secret identity. And if you read the comics or you watch the movies, eventually this secret identity, it comes to the surface. Eventually somebody, whether it's a good, whether it's a good guy or a bad guy, somebody discovers this secret identity. And they're always, they always find out and either something good happens or something bad happens. But regardless, whenever the secret identity comes to light, something crazy happens to those people who discover the identity. Whether good or bad, something crazy happens here. Some people want to destroy the hero after they've discovered the secret identity. Some people want to like help the hero after they've discovered the secret identity. But they always react to that secret identity. And today, we're going to look at some traits of people who have recognized Jesus' true identity. Okay, the original Superman. Whenever we discover who he is, whenever we realize his true identity, it changes everything about us. And I want to look at some traits, some things that become true of us when when we recognize Jesus' true identity? What impact does that have on us? Does it really mean anything for us? And if it means something for us, then what does it mean? I think today's text shows us that as, well, it's Peter, discovers Jesus' true identity, or at least professes Jesus' true identity. So I would invite you, let's stand together, let's read God's word. Um, I haven't even told you where we're going to be. If you want to open, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. And I know Matthew's a big surprise for y'all, but Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 13. And even though your bulletin says 23, uh, I lied to the secretary before she printed those. We're only going to go through verse 20. So um, there we go. Let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, as we come to this time and we open your word and we, we look at this profession from Peter, this proclamation from Peter, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that same truth, that we might see who you are, who the Son of the living God is, that we might see Jesus today. Uh, more so today, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would help us to see you clearly. And I pray that as a result of that, we would live by the truth that you then share with Peter. 
and his and the rest of the disciples. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us into this truth and into this time, and that you would help us so that we might know you more deeply, that we might better recognize your true identity. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're going to look at these traits of those who recognize Jesus' identity, okay? And if you want to say it was a secret identity, you're welcome to do so. Um, I, I don't think he keeps it that much of a secret. People just seem to be blind. Um, so anyway, first, those who recognize Jesus' identity are blessed. Now, yeah, that might sound obvious. Okay, I'm good with that. Those who recognize Jesus' identity are blessed. But see, there's a few things about that that we need to recognize. First, not all people do recognize Jesus' identity. Not all people recognize Jesus' true identity. Um, we get to verse 13, and we find where this, where this takes place, right? It says that it happens at Caesarea Philippi. Um, and I like maps so much that I want to put the same map that we had last week up. Because, again, these are real people, real places, in a real time. This is not some fairy tale. This is a real thing. Now, I know that's small. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to give some of this, but I wanted to cover the entire area. So um, here we have, we have Palestine at the time of Jesus. I hope you all can see that right there, right? Okay. So a couple weeks ago, Jesus was out performing these miracles. And he healed this Canaanite woman's daughter. Um, and at that point, he was up here in this region. There's Sidon right there, and here's Tyre. So he was up here in this region in Gentile territory performing this miracle as he heals this woman's daughter. Okay, So that's where he was before. Now, this is outside of Jewish territory. If you can see, there's this faint gray line that kind of comes up and around right here. And then we come back down the Jordan River. Um, basically, everything down here... This is Jewish territory. This stuff is not. Okay? So Jesus was up here. He healed this woman's daughter. Then the next thing we find is he's feeding 4,000 people with virtually no, nothing. Right? Okay? So he's down here in this area that it says on this map, 10 towns, is known as the Decapolis. Again, outside of Jewish territory. That's primarily a, Jew, a Gentile territory. But see, now what we're going to find is he's at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was most likely up in this area. It's actually marked on the map here. But he was up in this region right next to Mount Hermon. Okay. Now, again, this is important because he is outside, outside of Jewish territory. So he is in Gentile territory here. And he's going to begin teaching. And this is where Peter's profession is going to come. Peter's going to recognize him while he is out here away from all of the religious Jews of the time, which would have primarily been down in Jewish territory. Okay. Now, um, Something that, that came up as I was thinking about this is Jesus just missing everything. Like, why is he going from here to here to here all over? Why in the world is he doing that? And I think it's actually good to remember, Matthew does not necessarily write chronologically. Um, Matthew is not saying he went from point A to point B to point C. Instead, he's writing thematically. So whenever we see this and it looks like he just took a shotgun and he just blasted all over the place, how did Jesus get from point A to point B so quickly? Well, the thing is, this is not necessarily chronological. Okay, so we need to understand that. He's writing in themes. But where we find him today is up here in this region around Caesarea Philippi. And then verse 13 goes on and we see that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man, whenever he's Jesus is asked this, he's asking, who do people say I am? The Son of Man is a lot of times Jesus' self-designation. He says, I am the Son of Man. Okay, so who is the Son of Man? Who do people say that I am? And whenever he asks who people say, this is a very generic word. He says it's, it's the word anthropoi. It's where we get our word anthropology, right? So it's the study of humanity. It's just people. Who do people in general, who do they say that I am? He says to his disciples, I want to know what everybody out there, what are all those people, what is the world, who do they say that I am? Those people that we encounter, who do they say they are? In other words, Jesus is asking about what the popular opinion is. What does everybody think? 
Who do they think I am? And in verse 14, it says that they replied. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And really, if we get to thinking about this, some people thought that he was a good guy. They made good guesses. I mean, they were just taking stabs at this thing. Most recognized that Jesus was from God and that he was a, generally speaking, he was a good man. He did some good things. So they were not all that far off, I guess. I mean, they said John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a forerunner to the Messiah, right? So, I mean, that makes sense. He did some good things. And if you actually think about this, isn't that what Herod thought about Jesus? He said, well, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he has miraculous power. So clearly people are thinking, well, maybe this is just John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said Elijah. Some people thought that he was the prophet who would come before the Messiah. But they thought, well, he's not really the Messiah, right? Well, he's the one that's going to come. There will be a Messiah, but this isn't him. It's Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, he's a servant who's going to testify about God or on God's behalf. But this isn't the Messiah, they're saying, well, yeah, he's a good guy, but he, this, this isn't the one we were waiting for. See, all of those people that they were talking about, the people, what did they say about him? All of them recognized a few things about Jesus and some good things about Jesus. But all of them fell short of recognizing his true identity. It's like they were looking at Superman with glasses on, not with the glasses off. Right? They were so close. So close. They saw some incredible things there. They saw something special there, but they just didn't put it all together. But see, then we get to those. So some didn't recognize Jesus' true identity, but some do so. Some do recognize Jesus' true identity. But why do they actually recognize his identity? What was it that caused them to recognize his true identity? Well, here, according to this, it's divine revelation. It's God revealing himself to them. Verse 15, the very first words he says, But you... And this is emphatic, because if you look at the... This is, okay, grammar nerd for a minute. In Greek, you don't have to say you. Like, if I say, um, you need to do this, I would say, you need to do this. In Greek, you don't have to do that. You can just drop the you, because the you is implied with the word, with the imperative. So it's just implied. You don't actually have to say it. But here, Jesus actually says, you. But you, who do you say that I am? And this is emphatic. Like, he's making a point. He says, I know what everybody else says about me. I know that they say I'm John the Baptist. I know they say I'm Elijah. I know they say this, that. They say I'm a prophet, that I'm just somebody. But who do you say that I am? Now, think about how personal this becomes. Real quick. I know what the world says. I know what everybody else says. But you. Like, almost like there's a bullseye painted on them. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? See, Jesus is no longer interested in popular opinion. He knows the popular opinion. Instead, he wants to know what you have to say. Now, just think about that for a minute, because I believe that's still a very important question. Who do you say Jesus is? Listen, I'm not not an old man, although sometimes I think I'm older than I really am. Um, I played basketball and then played paintball yesterday, and my legs tell me I'm older than I think I am. Um, So I'll just leave it at that. Um, Where was I going with that? I had a point. Oh, I know what the world says about who he is. I know what the world says about who Jesus was. Who he is. What he's done. I know what the world says. Jesus says that's irrelevant. Who do you say that I am? I think he asks us the same question. Who do you say Jesus is? And this leads us to Peter's confession or profession. Jesus professes Jesus as 
the Messiah. Verse 16, it says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one that was to come to save your people. You are the one who is going to redeem your people. Now, did Peter have it all figured out? Of course not. Of course Peter didn't have it all figured out. And if you, just, if you don't believe me and you think he had it all figured out, just skip ahead like five verses near to see. Peter didn't have it all figured out. Okay, But Peter knew enough. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that he was the one that was going to come to redeem his people. He knew it. And he says, you're the son of the living God. You're not just another guy. You're not just another prophet. You are the son of God. And in verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter and all the other disciples by connection. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Okay, now something really important just happened here. Peter, Peter is told that he is blessed, but why is he blessed? And there's this word here that connects this idea, okay? Because it shows us causation. I've said this about a thousand times since I've been uh, the pastor here. But if you see this little word, this word, because, you see this word, box it in, underline it 15 times in your Bible because it's going to show you something important. Why is Peter blessed? Jesus says, you are blessed, Peter. But why? Why is he so blessed? And it's because flesh and blood did not reveal this thing to him. Like, I could stand up here all day, and now, I, I tell you all, I tend to think I'm a smart guy, um, and I, I know I'm not that smart, but I tend to think I'm pretty smart, and I think I could be persuasive, so I could probably stand before you, and I could probably convince you of a few things. Um, I, I can talk a lot, and I can say a lot of words, and if nothing else, I'll confuse you and me both, and by the end, we'll have something figured out, um, or nothing figured out, I don't know. Anyway, I could probably convince you of something if I tried really hard, but the truth is, I cannot convince you that Jesus is the Son of God on my own. I can't do that. I could give you the best arguments in the world. Like, all of these reasonable arguments. And I thought about this even as I was reading through this last night. And I know that Alan doesn't really believe Jesus is the Son of God. So if I come up to Alan, I love you, man. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but if I come up to Alan and I say, okay, he doesn't really believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I give him every reason to believe that the resurrection was true. Like, Jesus was, in fact, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life. I convince you of this. Like, and then... He died on a cross. Romans don't screw up, by the way. Whenever they kill somebody, they kill somebody. Okay, so Jesus was dead on the cross. They saw where they buried him. So they go and they put him in this tomb. And he's in this tomb for three days. And on the third day, they go to that same tomb. And guess what? It's empty. Nobody's been able to find the bones of Jesus. Nobody can actually identify where he was. And guess what? All the Jewish officials, they were still looking for Jesus. And they couldn't find him. They couldn't find the body. You know why? Because it wasn't there. And there's all these historical reasons. I give you all the historical reasons. Am I going to convince you? Probably not. You're going to say, yeah, I don't know. I just don't buy it. How many people can you give solid evidence for? And they're just like, you know what? I just don't know. Like, I, I, But really, somebody was raised from the dead like he was dead and in the grave? You expect me to believe that? The answer is yes, I do expect you to believe that. And not because I'm going to be able to convince you of it. Because I can't. That's just true. I can't. See, Peter is blessed, not because somebody came up to him and gave him really solid logic. No, that's not why he was blessed. He was blessed because God revealed himself to him. He said, he said flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Why is Peter blessed? Because God opened his eyes to who Jesus was. And because of that, Peter is objectively blessed. Um, and if you ever want to just see a passage that, that supports that, look at Matthew just a few chapters ago. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. It says, All things, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal. The only way we can know Jesus' secret identity 
is if the Father tells us who he is. We need the Father. Which, by the way, why is that so important? How does that actually impact us? Okay, well, whenever you go and you start sharing the gospel with somebody, the weight's not on you. You share, absolutely, and give persuasive reasons for believing. I think that's a good idea. But the truth is, your persuasive reasons are never going to be enough. You need to go to the one who can actually reveal the Son. Pray that God would open eyes, not you. Uh, The funny thing is, I was just having this conversation. Since I picked on Alan, I'll just mention him again. I had this conversation with him a while back. And I told him the first time I ever actually like, had, had the privilege of being a part of somebody coming to Christ. Like, God used me there. I stopped back to that, and God worked in spite of me, not because of me. Uh, I had to admit that what I said, it wasn't, like, it was nonsense for the most part. Afterwards, I looked back, I was like, why would I say that? The truth is, God worked not because of me, but in spite of me. Now, again, I'm not telling you that means that we can be nonchalant about that. I don't think that's a good idea. I think we should think this through. But what we have to understand is God is the one who reveals. God is the one that has to open eyes. He's the only one that can share that secret identity. And when he does, the person that he shares that secret identity with is truly blessed. Objectively blessed. So those who recognize Jesus' identity are blessed. Second thing we can learn here. Second trait. Those who recognize Jesus' identity are included. They're included here. Okay, Peter We find that he is the rock on which the church is built. Verse 18, it says, And I also say that you are Peter. Now, in the Greek, there's a play on words here because Peter is the Greek word petros, which means stone. Um, Some some commentators have made a big deal out of how how this means like pebble or tiny stone. Um, Peter, you're you're just a pebble. Like, okay, whatever, I don't care. Peter still is given primacy here in the church. So whatever, you can can call him whatever you want. But Peter is the first one to make this profession here. So, Peter, he's a stone. He goes on in verse 18 and he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, now, I'm going to work through this uh, in kind of a different way right now um, because I think there's some important questions we could ask. Now, you all, you all have heard all the question words, right? If I asked you for the question words that indicate a sentence is a question, you would say who, what, when, where, why, how. Y'all got that? Some of you are nodding. You're like, yeah, I'm sick of hearing it. Okay, good. Well, we're going to ask those questions, okay? So who's doing the building here according to verse 18? Jesus is. He says, I will build my church. Jesus is the builder here. Okay? So let's not miss that. Again, Jesus is the one who's building. Now, we could try to build all we want. We could try to do all these things. But again, Jesus is the one who is doing the building. Okay? He says, I will build my church. Okay? So he's the builder. Now, um, again, though, that's important because if we try to do it, we're not doing anything good. Psalm 127, verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. We could try all we want. But if we don't look for God to build the house, we are laboring in vain. Okay, Jesus has to be the one who is building the church or else it's a waste of time, energy, resources. Jesus has to be the builder. Okay, So Jesus is building. Okay, But what is he building? According to verse 18, he says he's building his church. He says, I'm building my church is what he says. Now, two things. First, the church belongs to him. The church belongs to him. Not you. Church doesn't belong to you. Church doesn't belong to me. I know I'm the pastor here. Church doesn't belong to me. Not even close. It's not my church. Well, I'm a part of this church, but it's not my church. The church belongs to Jesus. Okay? It's his church. Second, what in the world is a church? Right? There's this funny word that we use all the time, and we think we have a pretty good grasp on what the church is, but what is the church here? What is this word? What does this really mean? Is it the building? Like, is Jesus saying, I'm going to build this building? Of course not. We all know that. Um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, one of the things I get irritated by at, at my house is whenever we call the, the building the church, um, right? So it's like, hey, are we going to the church? Like, no, we're not going to the church. We are the church. 
We are a part of the church. We're going to the church building, um, and maybe I'm just a jerk about that, but I don't like calling this the church. And I know it's accepted. Like uh, I tell people all the time, I'm all about effective communication. So if you call it the church and we know what we're talking about, okay, fine, I guess I'm on board. But whenever we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building. This is four walls and a roof. Like Now, is it set aside for a good purpose? I think so. But it's a building. There's lots of buildings. There's one church. Okay? Jesus is building a church. So is it a building? No, it's absolutely not a building that he's talking about. Is it an event that he's talking about? Because that's how we often view church. Well, I went to church this Sunday. Oh, good for you. What does that mean? Okay, did we go to an event? Is that what church is? No, that's not what church is. If that's your concept of church, you need a new concept. Because that's not what Jesus means whenever he says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about building some event on Peter and his ability to speak. That's not what he's getting at. He's building something bigger than that. As a matter of fact, the word in the Greek that he uses here whenever he says church is the word ekklesia. And uh, some of you may have heard this word before. Some of you may not have. But this word could be translated as church. It could be translated as assembly or assembly of those who have been summoned. That's what the church is. It's the assembly of those who have been summoned. And that's what Jesus says he's building on Peter, on this rock. Now, if we, okay, you're ready? Y'all are, if you weren't checked out before, you're about to be. Oh boy, we're going to talk about etymology for a word. Anybody know what etymology means? Um, it's basically the history of a word. How did the word become what it is? Um, that's the simplest terms of what etymology is. Okay, so the etymology of the word church. This word actually does come from a Greek word, which is helpful. It does come from a Greek word. That means house of the Lord. So in that sense, fine, whatever. Problem is, that word wasn't used, like that word church, wasn't used until the Middle Ages. It wasn't even used until the Middle Ages. And that word was taken then and turned into a German word, uh, adapted to a German word, which means house of worship. So whenever we say church, we're using a German word that means house of worship. So by that, I guess, fine. You want to talk about the building as a house of worship? Okay, fine. Again, effective communication. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Whenever Jesus says he's going to build his ecclesia, his gathering, his assembly of those called out. He's not talking about a physical location. He's talking about a spiritual identification. He's not, I'm going to say it again because I think it's catchy and it sticks with my head. He's not talking about a physical location. He's talking about a spiritual identification. Those who are going to be built on Peter, this ecclesia, this gathering, those who have been called out, those who have been called to Jesus. So who's building? Jesus is. What is he building? He's building a church. When is he building it? Well, he's been building it from the beginning of time. You go back to the Old Testament, you're going to see he started building it there. Go read Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to find that God was building his church by faith. He was building this to this time. Not specifically in this text, so we're going to keep moving on here just a little bit. But just understand, whenever he says that he's going to build his church, that includes you and it includes me. It includes us. We are stones in this building. So when is he building it? Well, from the beginning of time to the present. Where is he building? He says he's building on this rock. Now... He says he's building on Peter. Now, uh, okay, there have been abuses of this text. Um, There have been abuses of this text to say that those who, like Peter, he has authority in the church because he's the one on which the rock was built. Um, And those who are in the line of Peter then would have have that authority in the church. Uh, I think that's an abuse. Um, I don't mean to beat up on on Catholics too much, but that's where the idea of the Pope comes from. They're the Peters that were to come. Um, I just don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at here. See, instead, what we need to understand is the church is ultimately built on Jesus as the cornerstone. Um, All Christians, all churches, all gatherings, all ecclesias must be built on Jesus. 
on him. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that we have to line up with. Now, Peter is one of these apostles and prophets that is in line with Jesus. They're the foundation. They're at the bottom layer there. They support the others. So what is Jesus saying here whenever he says that he's building it on Peter? I believe what he's saying is this. That Peter was the first stone to be placed in this building. Right next to the cornerstone. So he's given, um, uh, D.A. Carson calls it this salvation historical primacy. Um, uh, Salvation historical primacy. In other words, he's the one on which every other is laid. He's at the base layer. And he says, the church will be built on you that way. Peter was the first to make this confession, but he is one of many stones that would be placed in the building of Jesus and his assembly. Okay? So what is he building? Well, he's building this church. When? From the beginning of time to now. Where? On Peter. But why is he building this? Why is he building this? Ultimately, it's for God's glory. He's building this church for God's glory. See, he goes into this whole thing, and really that's what we're all here for, right? All things were made by him and for him. Um, We know that all things were made by Jesus for Jesus, for God, right? Um, So we know that. But he goes on and he says that the gates of Hades will not overpower this church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, what are these gates? Well, you all, you all get the picture of a gate, right? It's something that allows interest. But what that is, especially in this time, in this context, is it symbolizes authority. Um, you, you see, whenever they, uh, whenever they were to do business, they would go to the city gates. And that's where they would take care of business. That's where things were done. That's where the authority was, at the city gate. So here, he says, the gates of Hades, or the gates of death, they will not overpower the church. The power of death will not overcome the church. Isn't that beautiful? And what we know is that Jesus died, and, well, to say this in a not-so-polite way, Jesus kicked death's butt. Um, He won. He won. Jesus overcame the strength of death. Overcame the power of death. That's why he built it. That's why he built this church, which leads us then to the how. How is this gathering, this assembly of those called out being built, which actually leads us to verse 19. Um, verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And again, another verse that has been abused within the church. It has been abused within the church. Um, it, it's almost been abused to say that the church has the ultimate authority over your salvation. Do you believe that's true? Because I don't. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I can't save you. I don't have authority over your salvation. I I don't. Neither does anybody else sitting in this room. They just don't. They don't have authority over it. So what is he getting at, right? Um, If the church doesn't have that authority, then what is Jesus saying here? Now, certainly there is an aspect of authority here, but it's inappropriate to suggest that the church has unlimited authority. To better understand this binding and loosing that he's talking about, we need to understand the analogy that he's given. Now, this may be a little bit heady here, and I'm going to do it because I think it's important to understanding this text. What are the keys, though? He says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. And that's what gives them the ability, that's what gives the church then the ability to do this binding and loosing that Jesus is talking about here. So what in the world are the keys? Because he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, to understand the analogy, let's think about what keys did and what keys still do. Right? Y'all understand what keys do. Y'all got keys? I don't, mine are on my desk. They unlock, they, they allow access to something that you previously couldn't have accessed. 
right? That's what keys do. Now, most of you, okay, fine. Some of you don't carry keys, like keys, keys, you put in the lock and turn, okay? I know some cars, you just walk up, you touch the handle, and you push a button. You don't ever touch a key. Most of us, we don't lock our houses, so, um, or you go in through the garage, and there's a passcode there. Well, that's a good one, okay? Your phone, most of your phones probably have passcodes on them, right? That passcode is a key. It allows access to a thing that was previously locked, Okay? So that's what a key is. It allows access to something that was previously locked. Now, the only person who can access my phone is me or someone whom I give that passcode to. That's the only way they can get into my phone, right? You get that? The only way if you have passcode? Or if you're smarter than me and you know how to use technology? I don't. Um, So there you go. Jesus is just saying, I'm going to give you the passcode to the kingdom. I'm going to unlock the kingdom for you. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you everything that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom. And what is the thing that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom? What is that thing that's necessary? What is the key, the passcode, whatever you want to call it? What is it? Well, it's the reveal, it's the identity revealed in Jesus. That's what he's been talking about, right? The gospel, it's Jesus and who he is and what he's going to do. That's the passcode. That's the thing that's necessary. It's the good news of the kingdom revealed in Jesus. That's the key. Jesus is the key. Now, let's think about this binding and loosing in those terms, okay? Does that mean that we as the church unilaterally decide who's bound to the kingdom and who's not? Again, no. That's not what that means. And we've already talked about that, so let's move on. Instead, what that means is since we have this key, that when we share the gospel, we are binding and loosing those to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now we get how that might be binding someone, right? I, I share the gospel. You didn't know Jesus before. I share the gospel. God opens your eyes. You understand the gospel. You receive the good news of Jesus. Okay? We get how that might bind someone to the kingdom of heaven. But how does this loose someone from the kingdom of heaven? Well, the truth is that the same gospel proclamation that allows someone entrance might also shut someone out from the kingdom. Um, D.A. Carson says it like this. He says, but the same gospel proclamation alienates and excludes men. See, by giving you an option, by telling you the truth, it forces you to respond either positively or negatively. It forces you to respond. Like if I tell you something, either you're going to believe it or you're not. There's typically not a middle ground. You might say, well, I believe part of it. Well, then you don't believe it. Either you believe it or you don't. By sharing the good news of the kingdom, by opening that gate, by saying, here's the entrance, we're saying either you're going to walk in or you're not. Those are your options. There's not a third choice. So by sharing that good news, either someone is in or they're not. They have to make a decision as to whether they believe or they don't. Peter, in Acts chapter uh, 8, he actually experiences something similar to this whenever somebody tries to buy their way into the kingdom. And here's what he says. It says, But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. So what he just did is he, he loosed. Like he, he said, You are shut out from the kingdom. May you have, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent and this wickedness of, of this wickedness of yours, and pray, that the, pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. In other words, he says, Look, you're outside of the kingdom. They've been, they're loose. They're out there on their own. He is not in the kingdom. But then you notice what he does? He says, pray that you might be forgiven. He says, right now you're loose from the kingdom. He shared the good news with him. And he says, you're outside of the kingdom. He says, but, but pray that if possible, you might be forgiven. Peter had been given the keys and he tells somebody boldly, 
boldly about the good news. But then he also urges them to repent and plead that God would forgive them. So whenever we share the gospel, we exercise our responsibility in binding and loosing by using the keys to the kingdom. So those who recognize Jesus' identity are blessed, they're included. And then third, third, those who recognize Jesus' identity are directed. They're directed. Now, God doesn't just leave you out there on an island. Like, it's not like we say, oh, well, okay, I've been bound to heaven, now I just sit back and do nothing. No, we've been given directions. We've been given orders. Now, in verse 20, it says, Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. In other words, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Like, keep this, keep this a secret for now. See, these disciples, with Peter, their spokesperson, just made this, like, the most amazing profession ever, right? It's that, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yeah, but could you keep that quiet? Like, let's not tell anybody for now. Does that make sense to you? See, actually, whenever I first read stuff like this, I just sit there and I'm like, what? Why wouldn't you want everybody to know that? Why wouldn't you be like, yeah, go tell everyone that news? But... Then as I start thinking about that, I realize I'm questioning what Jesus did here. Um, So surely there's a reason. Surely there's a reason Jesus is commanding this silence. Surely, did he want people to be saved? Of course he did. Of course he did. Now, we've talked about this at least briefly in the past, so I'm going to be brief again. See, what we find is that Jesus was a man. He was a man. He had limited time. He had limited space. He was only here for a time. So the crowds, the crowds then, if they found out who he was, could potentially be a hindrance to his mission. They could be a hindrance to his mission. Um, Just think about it like this. The crowd, they could have short-circuited his mission to die for sinners and to be raised again by taking him and making him king by force. Which is actually what the crowd tries to do in John 6.15. They try to take him and force him to be their king. So Jesus keeps this a secret. Why? He doesn't want his mission to be short-circuited. Even more... Jesus is already given this sign-filled ministry where he did things that only the Messiah would be able to do. He already did what he needed to do. Nobody needed to say a word. So he tells them that they should keep quiet. Now, I hope you know that this command Jesus gives to his disciples does not apply to you. This does not apply to you. Do not keep your faith a secret. Okay? This does not apply to you. What we need to do is we need to understand our place and the place of these disciples in redemptive history. We are in a different place than they were. They just made this amazing profession. They were some of the first to realize who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah that would come to redeem his people. They understood that, but it was a different time. See, these disciples, while here, they're they're ordered to remain silent. Later on, they would be ordered to go and make disciples of all nations. The orders change. The direction changes. Um, we, with the disciples, we've been commanded to go and to tell people. We've been told to proclaim the good news. Um, just proof of this, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that, um, says that this is why we are called Christians, for the proclamation of who Jesus is. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? He says, So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Why are we called a chosen race? Why are we a royal priesthood? Why? So that you can go proclaim who Jesus is. The riches of who he is. That we've been called out of darkness and into his light. So while these disciples here with Jesus at this time, they're directed to remain silent, we've been directed to not be able to shut up. Like, tell everyone. We've been told to go. So those who recognize Jesus' identity, they're blessed, they're included, they're directed, so what? 
Um, I thought about this, and as I was doing this, if we just took that first part where it says those who, and it changed that to if you, and then we added another you um, right over here before the R. So if we just did that, we just changed it up a little bit. And I didn't tell Steve that was coming. I meant to, but I'm a slacker. Sorry, Steve. Um, anyway, so if we change that to if you recognize Jesus' identity, you are blessed. Like, objectively blessed. We could do that. If you recognize Jesus' identity, you are included. And if you recognize Jesus' identity, you have been directed. Okay? Since, since you've been blessed, which I believe is true, if you recognize Jesus' identity and you've been blessed, deal with that reality. Operate within that reality. Look, no matter how difficult things around you might be, can you honestly sit there and say, I'm blessed? And I'm not talking like the cheesy bumper sticker, like the hashtag blessed stuff. I'm talking like objectively, truly blessed. Like, if you know who Jesus is, you are a blessed person. God has blessed you by revealing who he is and what he's done. You have been saved from eternal death. And you have been given eternal life. You are blessed. So, no matter what you're going through, whether things are good, bad, ugly, whatever, you are a blessed person if you know who Jesus is. So, dwell on that. And since you've been included, I urge you, look at you, and you're good. And since you've been included, you've been included in a family, you've been included in this ecclesia, in this church, well, then I want to tell you, as the Bible tells you, to love one another. That might sound incredibly simple again, but God has given you a family. God's given you a church family. He's given you brothers and sisters. Now, look, I love my brothers, and I sometimes I hate my brothers, but I love my brothers. Like, I always love my brothers. Um, sometimes I might want to just deck them, but I love my brothers. And I would do anything for my brothers. And I know they would do that for me. That's part of being in a family, right? So that's what you do. We're in a church family. We have brothers and sisters around us because we've been brought into this gathering, the assembly of those who've been called out. So love one another. Be there for them. And how do you do that? Is that by just, well, I love them, but I'm going to do it at a distance. Just don't talk to me ever, and we'll get along great. I know that you can't get to know everybody. There's 100 people in the room. You can't know everybody perfectly. Like, I, I get that. But at the same time, are you involved with one another? Do you share life with one another? And if not, why? You're a part of the same family. Share life with one another. I got to do that yesterday where I was shooting a bunch of teenagers with paintball guns. It was a great time. Love it. Be with one another. Be involved in the church. You're included in a family, which means you've got siblings around you to be involved with. And that means that they can be there to help you, and that means that you can be there to help them. Be there for one another. And now, I've told you before, I want to be the weirdest looking herd anybody's ever seen, and that's true. We may look weird, and I'm good with that. Um, but we're still a herd. Like We're still together. We're still a family in this thing. So, Love one another since we've been included in the same family. And since you've been directed, actually I should say you are directed. Um, because if you know Jesus and his identity, you have a direction. God has given you orders. Um, it's not as if you can just sit by idly. Um, you know, we think about heaven and it's like, okay, well I'm going to sit on this cloud playing a harp and just sit here. No, that's not what, first of all, that's not what eternity looks like if you know the Bible. Second, that's not what we're told to do as Christians. We're told to go and do something. Like, go and make disciples. That's a good start. Let's do that. How do we do that? Open the book and read. There's a whole lot of other things that God's directed us to do. So if you know who Jesus is, follow the direction he's given you. Okay? Now, if you've never been told who Jesus is, I'm going to do this understanding that, like, I, I, can't, I can't convince you. 
but I'm still going to tell you who he is. I'm, I'm about to give you the passcode to the kingdom. Y'all ready for this? Okay. Um, whether you believe this or not, that's between you and God. But see, here's the key. You are dead in your sin. Dead, like D-E-A-D, dead. Dead in your sin. And you will always be dead in your sin. You don't have any hope because there's nothing that you can do. Because you know what dead people don't do? Really anything. Dead people don't do things. You don't have any hope. You can't fix it. You are dead in your sin. The good news, however, is God didn't like that. So he did something to fix it. He did something to fix your problem. He sent his only son. His name is Jesus. And he lived the life that you and I couldn't possibly live, the perfect life that you and I couldn't possibly live. He died the death that we deserved, and then he was raised again on the third day so that we could be justified before God. And by coming to him in faith, professing that he is your life, you can be forgiven and saved to life with the God who loves you. That's the good news. You can be saved from your sin. Because there was somebody who's better than Superman, better than Batman, like, oh no, he was better. He beat death. He beat death. Trust in him. So, I, I thought, well, how do I wrap this up? How do I tie a bow on this? And I'm just going to ask you the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Is, so, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that we can come to this word and we can hear this profession that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Lord, and I'm thankful that a part of that, that profession includes being made a part of your assembly, part of your gathering, part of your ecclesia, part of your church. Lord, I'm thankful that we can be your people. Um, Lord, because apart from the work you did through Jesus, um, we have no hope. So Father, today I pray that you would take this word and make it effective as only you can. Pray that you would reveal as only you can and that you would save as only you can and that people might be taken from darkness to light, that people might be saved of their sin and given hope of eternal life with you. Um, so, Lord, today I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you opened my eyes and that you've opened the eyes of many of those here. Um, Lord, and I pray that we would just walk in that truth, knowing that you've done incredible things on our behalf. So, Lord, I, I just want to offer... Offer your church back to you. Um, Lord, just say work in us and through us that you might accomplish things that only you can accomplish. But Lord, we pray that we can be a part of it. Um, Lord, and for those who, who haven't ever recognized you, um, I just want to continue to pray that you would reveal your identity to them. That you would show them that you are, you are who you say you are. You are God. Um, that you are the creator. You are the one who gives life and takes it away. Um, so, Lord, today I pray that you would open the eyes of many and that they might see you and be saved from their sin. Um, Lord, even as we go, as you've given us direction to go and make disciples, Lord, I pray that we would take that direction clear, or take that direction seriously and that we might go and we might share the reason that we have hope with those around us. Um, so, Lord, we pray that you would work through us um, as we go to the world around us. Um, Father, we thank you for this time, and I pray that it's a blessing to you and that it, you would use these words. Um, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.